Okay, I believe we are now live. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Critical Q&A. I'm just uh, pulling up my stream here to make sure we are good because it's... Uh, there we go. There we go. Confirmed we are good to go. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show for Sunday, uh, October 16th in the year of our Lord, 2022. <laughs> I love saying that. Uh, nice to see some comments here beforehand. Uh, wow, Gary, good to see you. So happy. I was just, I've been wondering where you went off to. Um, okay, so excellent. All right, am I sessionable? Very. Um, okay, so we're going to answer some questions. This is, uh, this is um, number uh, 381. Wow, we've done a lot of these shows. I wanted to start off with, I've totally spaced on Friday night during the Critical uh, Conversation show, um, showing you guys this sort of visual thing, this this stack of things over here that I wanted to show you guys. You know, sometimes you get some physical, symbolic representation of cultic behavior, of cultic thinking, of like how far off the rails and over the edge and out in the boonies can we go away from normal. <laughs> and, and I thought this was a great, somebody sent me, gifted me all of these, all of these books. And yeah, you can see them now in screen there. This is, every one of these is a different book. And each one of these is a different aspect of L. Ron Hubbard's life. And this one here is sort of the overview, the profile of L. Ron Hubbard. And then they took his professions, his, all the things that Hubbard claimed to be fully professional in, and they made an individual book. And I think I've got them all here. These are called the Ron Mags or Ron Magazines. And lacking an official biography from Dan Sherman, the author who was hired well over, I think it was 30 years ago now, to produce the official authorized biography of L. Ron Hubbard. Well, that's never happened. This is what happened. They made these things. And I don't know if you guys have all seen or heard of these. That's why I thought, well, that somebody sent them to me. So it's an opportunity for me to show them to you and show this is the level of dedication that Scientologists have for L. Ron Hubbard is they took this man's life, the lies, the nonsense, the faldy roll and balderdash that was his life, and they turned it into an encyclopedia. I, you know, words fail sometimes for, oh, thank you for that super chat there. Uh, yeah, exactly. A stack of bullcrap. That's exactly right. Um, oh, love seeing you guys here. I'm just going to just check in some of the comments here. Yes. And thank you, uh, Mandy, for that super chat. Um, yes. And I will answer your question. That's a great one. Um, so, just wanted to show these to you. And for example, here is a book of letters and journal entries that L. Ron Hubbard made that have, of course, been sanitized and uh, sort of, you know, de-awfulized. <laughs> and here is um, Adventurer Explorer. Okay, good. Adventure explorer. So all of his adventures and everything all around the world because, you know, Hubbard was quite the Indiana Jones character. And here he is. Uh, here's a whole book on L. Ron Hubbard with horticulture. Yeah, plants. You know that one picture of Hubbard with the e-meter shoving uh, the, the, the electrodes into a plant and then dialing it way up and noticing that the needle moves around, so therefore the life that exists in plants is the same kind of life that exists everywhere else, because clearly that's proof of that. That's basically the claim Hubbard made by sticking electrodes into a tomato and asking it questions. I, you know, I don't mean to uh, be overly sarcastic, but, you know, <laughs> anyway, composer, 
Um, writing with light, photographer, right? Nice, lots of lots of his photos here. So we got we got a bunch of this stuff. Motion picture, uh, the shaping of uh, popular fiction. Here he was as a writer. Now this was the only thing out of this whole stack of nonsense that he was actually professional in. Meaning he got paid, not meaning that he was any good at it. Hubbard was a really not a very good writer. Anyway, I could not waste the opportunity to show those to you guys. And I totally, like I said, totally spaced on the, on the Friday show in, uh, in doing that little presentation there. So, um, so I hope, okay, I hope we're not blurry anymore. looks like we're okay. All right, um, so, yeah, camera got confused by the books, that's right. Okay, so let's go ahead now that we are doing a critical Q&A show, let's go ahead and start getting to your questions, and you can start putting them in the comments section uh, here, uh, the comment, the live stream comments, and I will address your questions as they come up. And of course, Super Chats will, of course, go to the top of the list uh, as, I can, as I'm getting to them here. So Mandy Bishop asks, do you think Miscavige would have turned out the same way no matter if he'd gotten into Scientology or not? Would he have still been abusive or is it a case of absolute power corrupts absolutely? Um, I don't think Scientology can change your basic personality type. I think it exaggerates or exacerbates what's already there and traumatizes a person so that their ability to experience life and relationships and deal with others is, is, uh, is filtered or affected by that trauma. And so a person who's maybe of a, you know, patient or temper, you know, or, or, or nice or basically a good kind of person might become, you know, punchy and upset and, you know, kind of agitated, anxious, even depressed um, through the course of Scientology, but they're still going to be the same basic personality. And uh, my interview with Mike revealed that David Miscavige has kind of always been the way that he is. That's Mike's description of him, is that he was kind of an asshole from the very get-go. And Miscavige and Rinder first met before David Miscavige had even joined the Sea Org uh, at St. Hill in England, David Miscavige and his sister, his twin sister, uh, I think Denise is her name, they and the family were there at St. Hill doing training, and, and Miscavige had gotten up to the level of a class four auditor and was doing um, an internship there too. And this is a story related by Karen de la Carriere years ago, where she uh, kind of dished on the fact that Miscavige, on his internship, while learning how to be the perfect auditor that he was destined to be, uh, slapped one of his PCs, just slapped him. I mean, in an auditing session, you know, you can do an awful lot of things as an auditor to control your preclear, manhandle them back into a seat if they're trying to leave. You know, I've described the auditing sessions of Scientology. I'm, got, I'm not going to, you know, try to walk back every single little bit here uh, of describing all these things. I'm going to kind of assume you guys know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a Scientology auditing sessions where it's, you know, they have the auditor and the preclear. And so you can do as the auditor almost anything you want to, to in the direction of getting your preclear through the process. But just viciously, maliciously slapping them isn't part of that picture. Even in Scientology, that's unacceptable. That is completely off the rails. You just don't do that. Um, you would never hit your PC or beat on your PC or anything like that. Well, Miscavige did that as a teenager back in the day. And this is around the same time that Mike Rinder first met him and said, yeah, he was full of himself. He was always kind of a dick. And he was always very status happy. 
That's a kind of a personality as kind of how I look at that. It's somebody who is self-assertive, is self-important, is arrogant beyond belief, always, always has some reason or justification for why they are better than you. And we know that this kind of thing is fear-based uh, for the most part. It also There also is this sort of weird type of chaotic personality that wants to just watch the world burn. But I don't think that's miscavige. Uh, miscavige is this, I've got one up on you. I am more powerful than you. I am better than you. And because of that basic attitude, I think... He's always going to have been that way. What Scientology did, what L. Ron Hubbard gave Miscavige and what Miscavige took while in Scientology was power and influence. And he got himself very early on into a command position. In his early 20s, he was running Scientology. And um, that's amazing, but it's true. And he uh, really had no idea what he was doing. It's not like... He ever had any formal training or experience in how to in actual life. His whole time, he has just been in the Scientology bubble world because he was raised in it and he got involved in it so early, kind of like I did, where there was very little real world experience. But even I had 10 years of of staff experience in Santa Barbara working at regular jobs and stuff too and interacting with people and having some real world experience. Miscavige never got that. He has been in that Scientology bubble world the entire time. So it just elevates and expands his personality type, I think. And that's a long answer to, uh, to a pretty simple question. But yeah, I do think that um, I think it is a case of absolute power corrupts absolutely because I think because he got all that power and influence, it made it 10 times worse than he would have been if he had learned in the real world you gotta you gotta tamp that stuff down. You can't just walk around being an asshole all the time and expect people to just do what you tell them to because you're a dick. But that's kind of miscavige. And so because he was never stopped, never censored, never, you know, controlled, especially after Hubbard died, he just he his his the awfulness that is his his basic personality was allowed to just flourish. And that's uh that's how I see him in that in that world there. Um, okay, let's see here. Um, oh, sure. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, keep going here. Um, Shimoda asks, good evening, Chris. Can you share your thoughts on the protests in Iran? Uh, yeah, I am very, very happy to see the protests happening in Iran. I didn't think we were going to see this for a while. Um, Iran is a theocracy. It was taken over, I think, in 1979. Uh, the Shah, uh, who was a, there was a democracy there. It was kind of U.S. controlled or heavily U.S. influenced. But there was a government there and there was freedom of speech and dress and, and movement and things like that. And then um, the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, you know, revolution, they took over, they, they installed a theocracy of, of, of Islam. And, um, and I don't pretend to understand all the nuances of the Shiite versus uh, what a Sunni battles and all of that. I know that there are differences there in faith, uh, but that's all you know, followers of, of Muhammad and Islam. Um, and I know that in Iran, they're a rather extreme form of Islam, and they they really lock down in, uh, civil rights and human rights, and they don't really cater to those things. They don't have a Western, enlightened, rational, kind of or enlightenment kind of view. I don't mean rational. They're not all irrational people in Iran. I mean, they're not followers or students of the Enlightenment. And the whole Western idea of elevating the individual and and identity and individuality and free thought and free will and all of that, that's not the way they're approaching the world. And so they have uh, created a dictatorial authoritarian theocracy, and they rule by fear and intimidation and violence. And it's quite gross. And uh, women there are forced to wear the hijab, the, the covering, because it is indecent and inappropriate, according to their religious tenets, for women to be seen out in the open, in the open, 
they, they, you're not supposed to do that. And I think it has something to do with um, sexual repression and, uh, you know, sort of imposed modesty to the degree that all you can see is, is women's eyes. I mean, it's, it's, it's misogynistic in the extreme. There is no other word for it. These people hate their women. And um, because they do not afford them human rights or deal with them or treat them as human beings, they treat them as cattle and property. And I understand that in my limited view and understanding of the Middle Eastern world, I understand that to be a direct outgrowth of the old tribal mentality that still very much pervades that culture. So now, for whatever reason, we are seeing an uprising of women in Iran who are sick and tired of this. And I believe the catalyst was that a woman, a teenager, was uh, proudly speaking out, you know, dumping the hijab. No, I'm not doing that. And they tortured and killed her. Uh, for that. And, uh, you know, people who talk about here in the United States, I got to bring this up because it's just a pet peeve of mine, an endless bugbear of mine is that uh, Christians in the United States talk about, complain about how they are oppressed. And it's just, it's, it's, it's mad. It's frustratingly, insanely maddening to see Christians in the United States who own every level of government bitch and moan about how oppressed they are. It's total bullshit. In Iran, that's what religious oppression looks like, is women are not allowed basic human rights. And so they are protesting that, and they're fighting back and pushing back hard against that. And I am very, very happy to see that and very supportive of it. And that's kind of everything I know to say on it. Other, I can't dive into any more details than that. That's what I kind of know about the situation and what I think about it. And I'm I'm always happy to learn more about it. Uh, Okay, so that was Shimoda's question there. Um, Yeah, WW asks me, you have said your brother was never in Scientology. Have you asked him what he thought about it when everyone else in your family was in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't like it. He thought it was a crutch. He thought it was something that wasn't uh, producing the results that we all claimed it would. My my brother went through an awful lot of torturous word clearing and, and having Scientology applied to him when he was a teenager because he was not somebody who took to book reading or learning. He was very, very, he had problems with that. And my father worked with him a lot. My mom worked with him a lot. Um, this was during the time when my mom and dad were getting divorced. So there was, you know, problems with the family. And, um, you know, and I'd moved out of home uh, at this point, right? And my brother was just not taking to this. And it wasn't helping him. It wasn't helping him in school. wasn't helping him with his life. Whatever his issues were, it wasn't that. Uh, it wasn't misunderstood words. And so uh, he kind of got into more trouble, and um, and my parents didn't really know what to do at that point, and and so he never he never really got involved in in Scientology, and that's what he had to say about it, pretty much at least that uh, that I can share here. Uh, maybe he had other deeper thoughts about it, but that's that's what I know is he just wasn't impressed with it, didn't like it, didn't think it worked for him, and he was right on every count, really, as far as his experience with it goes. It never really did help him, and um, you know, and that's the thing about it is it claims to be a uniformly workable technology that everybody will respond to if it's applied to them properly. Well, my brother had it applied to him properly. My dad knows what he's doing when it comes to applying Scientology, especially back then. He was very trained and didn't work, you know. So that's what I can say about that. All right. Let's see what else we got here. Keep the questions coming in, folks. I love answering them here. Um, all right. Let's see here. da 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 da, da. Okay, Xion asks, have you kept all the Scientology books and materials that you collected over all your time? I did not. I had used to have a, a more extensive library when I was a Scientologist. I had a lot of books and lectures and a couple e-meters and stuff. And I didn't, I got rid of all that stuff. I think I, um, I think I sold one of the e-meters in order to, and I gave the money to my ex-wife to pay bills or credit card debt or something. And, um... And then I just left everything there. I didn't take anything with me when I left. Not because I didn't uh, think that I was going to do it. I was leaving it for her. 
Uh, she needed it more than I did. And I figured I would just get my own materials as things move forward and progressed. And then, of course, a few months later, I was, you know, I'd hit the eject button. So I never did get that. So what I've done now is I've basically gotten hold of a bunch of materials people have sent me over the years. I got a whole closet full of them out in the garage. And um, I've got a digital collection that is extensive. I've got, uh, you know, all uh, many, many editions of all the books, uh, lectures, tons and tons of lectures, not all of them, but a bunch. Um, you know, lots and lots of stuff. I've scanned a bunch of stuff. I mean, I've got a lot of material from Scientology in my, on my computer, but it's all digital. Okay. So there we go with that. Um, let's see what else we got here. Oh, okay. Keith Burnett, question. How did, does Scientology deal with org members who had special needs children? Did they encourage the parents to remove them or use other family members? Seems like a method they would use. Um, what I can say about this, Keith, is that I actually did know, as in Minnesota and other places, uh, parents, Scientologists who were parents of children who were autistic or had other special needs or disabilities. And um, it was always kind of unfortunate. And you would try to use Scientology objective processing and methods and techniques on them in order to try to help them out. But otherwise, it was really just kind of a boy, that's tough. Oh, man, don't know what to do with that. And it was kind of more of a, we didn't really know what to do with them. So we didn't really do much of anything with them. It, you know, it wasn't a matter of trying to encourage the parents to get rid of them. I never saw that. I would never. Um, it was just, oh, yeah, that's a tough situation. And because we knew, we didn't understand it, knew we didn't understand it. I'm talking about me, the other staff, Sea Org members, you would just kind of bounce away from it. It was just kind of a, hmm, I don't know what to do with that. And if, and, if it, and if the parents were insistent that their special needs children be audited or get Scientology applied to them and had the money to do it, which they often did not. One, one point I'm remembering now as I talk about this is, you know, it's a big investment of time and money and resources to deal with special needs kids. And... Um, so they often didn't have money <laughs> to also invest into Scientology for their kids. But, it, but in those cases where they did, they would do processing on the kids where they would do short sessioning, where they would only do a session that went for about you know 10 or 15 minutes. And they would try to concentrate or focus on objective processing, which is the kind of touch the table, look at the wall, look around. Simple, easy to understand, and easy to comply with uh, commands that would be given in order to try to bring the Thetan out and bring the, the child up to present time. But knowing that you are dealing with sometimes a neuro you know, a neurodivergent, neuro, pro, neurological problem. And, and if it was that kind of a thing, Hubbard said in, his, in, in the materials of Scientology that auditing won't necessarily work on people who don't have functioning neurological systems. So uh, they also would, you know, use that as an excuse or reason to not, you know, not deal with the kid or not deal with the problem. So that's, that's kind of what I saw in my own experience uh, of that over the years, you know, uh, feel free to ask me more about that. Ashley Wallace, question. Chris, have you covered what happened when LRH died? Wasn't there a ton of drama over who would take over? Ashley, I have. Uh, we have discussed uh, L. Ron, L. Ron Hubbard's death and what happened. I've done a number of interviews with people who we've, we've discussed these things. You might check out my interview with Jesse Prince, where he dishes quite a bit on Miscavige and, and the time period of that power struggle and takeover. And um, I, and I think there are probably a couple other people I've talked to over the years who might have had some things to say about that too. It was a dramatic time in Scientology, and specifically after Hubbard died in '86. It was January, 
something, 13th or 16th or something, uh, that he died in uh, 1986. And it was a year that it took for Miscavige to uh, take the whole operation over and move and install himself as the chairman of the board of the Religious Technology Center because it was clear after Hubbard died that he wasn't going to be producing any new written materials. So the royalty money and the money of Scientology had been mostly uh, ASI, Author Services, Inc., um, Hubbard's fiction literary agent organization where they were getting money in from royalties. Well, they still do. But the real moneymaker became services and materials and, and, uh, and getting the orgs going. And so Miscavige put himself over the top of all of that and made himself the head of the empire. Um, and there's a lot, there's so many details and little things to know. But check out my interview with Jesse Prince as a good starting place for yourself there, Ashley. Um, all right. Oh, I hope so. Kara uh, Linehan asks, with all the testimony in Danny's case, do you think it will not only have an effect on the view of Scientology, but also public perception of what coercive control can do in general? I certainly hope that those elements of the relationship with Danny and his ex's victims, um, I hope that's highlighted. I hope the, 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 the repeating pattern of abusive conduct that surely existed in those relationships is shown and highlighted in the court because that's the kind of thing that really shows you know with evidence with 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 like a repeating pattern of of abusive conduct then it's not so bizarre that he is taking it to the extreme that he did of sexual assault because that's who he is and that's what he does. He's he's just this guy who does that to women, at least according to them and according to the picture that they've painted, and I believe them. So, um, so it would be really good, and I hope that this could be an instance where that kind of thing could be highlighted in the media. Unfortunately, that kind of thing probably won't come out until afterwards, if at all, because people are so into the salacious details of the awfulness of it, and they really want to focus on that more than on the, the bigger picture of what this actually, what these women had to endure and, um, and how that how the, what the mechanics of that are, uh, the, you know, domestic violence, this kind of thing. It's a, it's a ongoing continuous problem because people really don't want to deal with it and they don't understand it. Pretend they don't understand it, you know, do all this nonsense about it when it's very, really pretty obvious and, and clear that you have abusive personalities who can't help themselves and, you know, get into these situations. So, yeah, I would be, I would be great if that could get, uh, some, some attention, hope it does um let's see here okay latitudes gary i'm sorry i've not heard of this uh he's asking me hey chris have you heard of that guy that created a cult with the name latitude society if you had is that a real thing or a social experiment i i don't know what to say i've never heard of it I'll have to look that up, Gary. But um, send me an email. Remind me of that, and I'll I'll look, I'll check into it. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, okay. Clur asks: Are there many new recruits anymore in Scientology? Do you know, or are people mostly born into it these days? It certainly seems like we're seeing um, a lot more second-generation members, people born into it, rising or coming up to the top or whatever, rather than new recruits coming in. I don't think Scientology is gaining members. I think it's bleeding members, and I think it continues to do that, or at least has leveled out at its new bottom. Um, you know, you might see a new first start here and there and in one place or another, but the idea that Scientology is a growing activity is, yeah, I would need to see evidence of that because all the evidence I see, uh, points to a shrinking organization and membership. Uh, okay. I mean, by evidence, I mean, real world evidence. I mean, you go take pictures of the parking lots outside their churches. They're empty. 
You go take pictures of their course rooms or their classrooms or their buildings. They're empty. Uh, And I don't mean just their promo pieces where they're purposefully empty. I mean during any time of day, any time of night. You go, you look around in a Scientology organization. It's a ghost town. So thriving, fastest growing religion? I don't think so, you know. Okay. Um, Fantastic. I know we got new members here. Scott uh, comments here about binging my my channel for hours on end. Good. (laughs) That's what it's for. I put all this content together for you guys so that you can learn and, and, and educate yourselves about not only Scientology, but destructive cults in general and coercive control and thought reform, right? Mind control. What's that actually all about? Because it is a real thing. It does happen seven days a week, all the time, everywhere. And uh, to a greater or lesser degree, it's a spectrum activity, right? There's lesser degrees and there's greater degrees of influence. And uh, I like to talk about those things because I, I want people to be informed and live their lives um, with an educated, informed perspective on how other people try to influence and manipulate them because it happens all the time. And, uh, and the more we know the better and more productive and happy I think our lives can be. So so binge away, uh, please do, and, uh, and welcome to the channel. Um, okay. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, oh, yeah, Jew Martin said, do I have any other collaborations with other YouTubers planned? Would it be cool that if you do warn us so we can watch it? Yes. Both of the ones I recently did were very, very spontaneous. Uh, the Popcorn Planet collab that I did was literally a half hour before that show aired um, or maybe an hour or something. They emailed me and like, hey, you want to be on the show? And I was like, hell yeah, I do. So that just happened very spontaneously. And Andrew was also very quick, quick, quick uh, in setting things up and, and going. I definitely do want to do more collaborations. I do not have anything scheduled right now, but I am working on another show with Andrew and uh, working on reaching out to other folks for that. Okay. Um, and I, as soon as I know, I will definitely try to make a point of posting it on my channel in the comments, or not the comments, but in the, the community sit tab I'll try to get notice up of that. I have not been as conscientious of that as I could be. Um, okay, Sarah Bazook. Uh, no, Mr. Big Wheel. I don't remember Sarah Bazook. Uh, high-ranking Sea Org member from St. Hill. No, don't remember that person. But I was in for... 27 years, and uh, there's a lot of people who came and went in my life that I do not remember anymore uh, over all that time. So I would need more specifics about her to know whether I met her or not, but the name's not ringing any bells. Uh, Any bells, sorry. Okay. um, I see, Shimoda. Thank you for that clarification on the, uh, the revolution and what happened there. Appreciate that. Uh, like I said, my 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 literal knowledge of of the Iranian conflict and history and revolution and all that is, it's minimal, and I know that. Uh, what I what I focus on, and and I and I, I just want to clarify say this, just to say it is you know, is I focus on behavior and belief and and what people do with those things, and so um so that's where I tend to focus my attention when I look into or study this stuff. Um, but I do love history too. And I, and I wish I could, you know, sometimes you just kind of wish you could know everything about history. You know, there's so much and there's so many interesting things to, to learn about. Um, all right, let's see what else we got here. Okay. Anthony Spurgeon asks, Hey Chris, the other day I saw some Scientology material in those plastic boxes for sale at a used bookstore. Would Scientology freak out if they knew that was going on? No, they do know what's going on. Um, in fact, I've even met Scientologists in orgs, uh, who were going to class who were saying they would buy materials off of eBay or off of, uh, at a used bookstore or something rather than pay full price at the org. And uh, when that came up, we would be like, Hey, 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 no, no, you got to buy from us. You got to buy from our bookstore. And they would sometimes kind of, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. 
And we really didn't have any basis to say, no, you cannot do that because the books are the books. It doesn't really matter. It's not supposed to matter (laughs) where you got them as long as you have them and as long as they're the authorized version of the book you're going to use. You wouldn't read... um, I mean, you could, but you probably really wouldn't get away with reading the 1950 edition of Dianetics in a modern Scientology classroom. They would want you to have the updated, revised, glossarized, you know, indexed version of that book. They would be very insistent upon that. But as far as the fact that those books exist in used bookstores, they know they can't do anything about it. And they, they really don't care that much, except for those times I mentioned when it impinges on their income um yeah science the books and meters are all over the place um (laughs) they found ot9 in the boxes at mar-a-lago wow oh such revelations truth revealed okay um masa amini yes cool um she was the woman who was uh, tortured and killed in Iran, according to Shimoda here, uh, and a very special person. Um, okay. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, oh, gosh, yes, Nerman. Okay, question. What's the difference between Nation of Islam and Islam? Why is Louis Farrakhan into Scientology? Okay. Um, the Nation of Islam is a is a blacks only sect or denomination, you could say, of Islam. It's its own little group. They have an, a very unique dogma and backstory and uh, history of Earth and of the black people, and it's quite lunatic. It's it's really nuts stuff. And if you want to treat it as a faith-based thing, well, we believe this, whatever, that I don't care about too much. But the enforcement, the coercive control that occurs in the Nation of Islam, the, the NOI, is quite intense. Um, you know, there's a dress code. There's, a, there's, a, there's words you can say and not say. Uh, men and women have to act very, very particular, specific ways. And these are, um, these are outlined, you know, in the dogma of the group. And, um, and Farrakhan has been the leader of this group for quite some time. And he is uh, blatantly anti-Semitic, blatantly racist, um, and proud of it, and makes that part of the dogma. And so he preaches this very, very gross anti-Semitic, anti-white messaging, and, um, and it's, that's what he does. And so um, that's not Islam. Islam is not, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's an intensely black culture-focused version of Islam, you could say. And I did a video where I broke down the belief set of, of NOI, and I'll, I'll refer you to that because I did all the research for that video, produced that video, and didn't forget everything, but didn't remember all of it either. So, um, so I will refer you to that. But um, it's, it's pretty loony stuff. And unfortunately, there is also uh, at least rumors of a criminal element connected with the NOI where they have been involved in gun running and uh, criminal criminal stuff, you know, just straight up criminal stuff. Um, and that's not, you know, that's that's kind of where they get a lot of their money and power and influence from. And then they connect up with Scientology, which is the most bizarre marriage ever. It is the most, it is the strangest partnership. Because like, for example, there are Jewish Scientologists. And if they hear what Louis Farrakhan has to say about Jews, you know, they're not going to be very happy Scientologists, but they somehow, you know, I don't know, somehow they figure out how to make that work, but it really doesn't work. And it, these two things really don't go together very well. But for whatever reason, um, I believe the the beginning of this with Louis Farrakhan signing up for Scientology was that he somehow was connected, I think, through Alfredi Johnson or some other Scientologists in the black community. 
he was connected up and got Dianetics processing. He got some some Dianetics auditing. And apparently, he took to it like a fish to water. He loved it, thought it was great, helped him out. And he said, therefore decided that Dianetics, as delivered by, written by the white devil, uh, was going to be okay. And that that was going to be something that his followers could do would be Dianetics. And it would make them better NOI members. And that was kind of the, the, the genesis of the whole thing. At least that was what was said out in the open. I have no knowledge, I really don't, of the behind the scenes there. I have conjecture, but I don't have actual evidentiary knowledge or anything as to what else might have been going on there. I don't think it was just a money thing. I think there was some sort of mutual survival point there. And I think Louis Farrakhan probably did really like Dianetics. I mean, it was a huge thing for him to ally with a basically white group and take their tech their mainline technique and incorporate it into the NOI that was that was not a small thing for him to do so clearly he was sold on the efficacy of this for some reason and I think it had to do with personal belief um I don't see any reason to doubt you know doubt what he had to say about that part of it but um that's what I can say about that. Um, oh, fair enough, Shimoda. If I miss, like I said, if I misunderstand some parts of what's going on over there in Iran or don't have the full picture, feel free to, to drop me an email. Let me know what I'm missing. I'm I'm always happy to learn more about this kind of stuff. Seriously, I like I said, what, what I know about this would would you know it goes into a thimble. It's not not a lot. Um, so I'm happy to, you know, to learn more. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for agreeing with me there, Gary. Okay. What is up with Josh? I think I'm going to have to get rid of that. That is annoying. All right. Um, Mr. Sadface, uh, Josh Thomas. Yeah, he's, he's, he's gone. Sorry. It took me a few minutes to catch up on that. Um, Okay, let us move along here. I have blocked Josh. I finally got around to it. I felt it was, uh, I was putting more of my attention on my answers. Oh, wow, yeah, there's a lot of spamming by this guy. Okay, well, he's out of here. Um, can you discuss? Okay. Nerman asks, can you discuss the 1977 raid of D.C. and L.A. Advanced Org? Um, could you be more specific, Nerman, as what, what it is you'd like me to discuss about that? The FBI raided the Church of Scientology in 1977, Big Blue, the, the, the Big Blue base. They also raided up in Canada at the, uh, I think, the CLO up there, the Office of Special Affairs up there, the Guardian's office up there at the time. And... Um, you know, that that had all come out of the whole Operation uh, Snow White thing, and they had uh, a whistleblower, they had a, a guy that they had, that they had caught, and, uh, and one thing led to another, and Scientology was suddenly under the FBI microscope. And uh, there was a lot, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a lot, there's a lot to it, so what, what specifically, Nerman, would you like me to discuss about that? Let's narrow the target a little bit. Um, Okay, Anthony Spurgeon asks, Chris Shelton, what's Hubbard doing in this recording? I heard of him where he's asking a crowd the same questions over and over. What you're listening to is called group processing. And it was an invention Hubbard came up with in the 50s where you could audit a bunch of people in a room at one time. And that is another example of what I was talking about earlier in in the show here, objective processing. It's processing where you're not thinking about stuff so much as you're executing commands in the real world. Look at the ceiling, look at the floor, do this, do that. Sometimes some group processing gets a little subjective in that it asks you to imagine or envision something or put beams out, you know, on the corners of the room or something. You know, this kind of spiritual sort of energy flow kind of thing. But mostly they are objective, real world, touch, you know, talk to the person next to you. Say say hi to the person next to you. Say hi to the person on the other side of you. Say hi to the person behind you. Say hi to the person in front of you. Look at the floor. Look at the ceiling. Touch your chair. 
you know, these kinds of things. And you do this for 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes, an hour. And you're supposed to run out, you know, uh, control, bad control you've had in the past, um, you know, considerations about your space or the world around you or um, bring you up to present time where your attention is more in the here and now rather than in the past. Um, You know, that's kind of the point of doing group processing. It's supposed to be a kind of a group activity, establish a little esprit de corps with the group, get everybody on the same page, doing the same thing. And um, and then, of course, it's a lot easier to take that group and control them to pay their money afterwards, see? Right? You put them in this semi... See, this is that, there's the... What I just told you is all the Scientology PR to it. What they're really doing is putting people in a semi-trance state where they're much more suggestible and controllable. Yeah, that's that's kind of what's really happening there. Okay. Uh, oh, thank you, Nada, for my for that compliment on my interview with Mike. It was it was a lot of fun. I really wish we had had more time. I I barely scratched the surface of what I want to talk to Mike Rinder about. So I am really looking forward to getting him back in the future after he's done with his old book tour and everything, and we can do more uh, deep dives into some Scientology stuff. Um, thank you very much though. I'm really glad that you guys liked that interview. Okay. Um, you know, JB is a good question with Miscavige systematically, um, systematically removing all loyal and competent followers. Does Scientology really have the bench or depth chart to continue past his death? I know they have money, but do they have a future? They always have a future if somebody with um, influence and power steps up and takes charge, right? Or if a group of people step up and take charge, as happened with the JWs, right? You had an initial leadership and then a council of people took over. And now, um, God, what was it, Lloyd Wasson, or not Lloyd Wasson, Lloyd Evans said, uh, uh, the rise of the incompetent or something, um, you know, um, survival of the dumbest i don't know uh you know it might well be it doesn't it doesn't take the best and brightest to run these organizations it takes somebody who understands the pattern of control that the group exerts over people and as long as you understand that it's not really that hard to run one of these groups um, you just kind of have to keep the machine going and keep it fed. And, and what amazes me, what amazes me over the years is watching how poorly David Miscavige misunderstands his own con. He, he really doesn't understand what makes Scientology work, why it is that people get drawn into it and stay stuck in it. He understands all the authoritarian, ruthless controls that you can apply to individuals when you're frustrated, pissed, upset, mad at them, want to take it out on them. I mean, that's what he does 24-7. But he doesn't really understand the psychology of what Scientology does to people. And because he doesn't understand that, he cuts himself, he, he cuts it out. He, he, sorry, he cuts himself off at the knees. He cuts the subject off. He makes it less effective. He makes it less workable right if the work if what it does if what if what scientology does is make money for the leader and and if what it also does is make followers out of its membership make robots or slaves out of its members and that is what it does Miscavige doesn't understand the mechanisms and, and, and techniques of how to actually do that. He slapped a PC when he was a teenager. He has nothing but contempt for people. You don't make this work that way. <laughs> you got to be a little smoother. And, um, and because he doesn't understand what it's doing, he makes changes to it that make it less effective, make the mind control less effective. And he doesn't like auditing. He doesn't like auditing to happen. He wants people paying their money for status and for reading books and for spending hours and hours looking in walls and touching them and stuff rather than actually 
rising up and becoming more powerful beings and all of that. So it's a weird, weird situation. It's not like it all surrenders to logic and reason because Miscavige is not a logical, reasonable person, and and, and neither was L. Ron Hubbard for that matter. So, you know, when I look at Scientology and the framework of control that it establishes, and this is this is the subject of my my research and my studies and everything is like what how does this work? I you know I it became very clear right away when I when I broke it all down that Miscavige doesn't understand it. He only understands how to hurt people, and you can get an awful long way just hurting people. I mean, you can see how far he's gotten, but. Membership is tanking. It's shrinking. It's a tiny little group of people. And it's very, very doubtful that um, he's going to have any secession plan or turn the reins over to somebody else. So if somebody else, so if Miscavige dies, if somebody else wants to take it over, they're going to have to put their brand on it. And they're going to have to maybe, if they understand it and return it back to what Hubbard was doing, then they might put something there that could grow again or could or could maybe do something. But doubtful, very, very doubtful uh, that that's going to happen. So, you know, so I don't really think it has many, much, you know, much in the way of legs running into the future. I think Scientology is going to shrink out and die. But there's so much money, so many buildings, so many resources that it's going to take a long time for that to happen. So it's anybody's guess. You know, uh, there's my whole diatribe on that. <laughs> okay, um, let's see what we got here. Wow, three meters on eBay. One's enough. <laughs> okay, good. Um, cool, guys. Just going through the comments here. Um Oh, interesting. Exxion asks, I'm sorry, I really don't know an answer to this question, Exxion. I remember hearing about a young boy in the cadet org who was made to strip down naked and cold water poured on him while watched by the rest of the kids. What do you know about? I don't. Not heard of that story. I heard about that with uh, Debbie Cook in the hole that they were that they made her stand in a trash can with a sign, I think, that said Lesbo or something. And they poured water on her and treated her like uh, dirt. Uh, and she had to literally stand in a trash can while they did that to her. Um, I don't know uh, about a boy in the cadet org, though. I've not heard of that. Okay. Which is not to say it didn't happen. I'm just saying I'm not. it's not coming to mind. Um, okay. Here's a good question. Um, Rodko, the Headleys are involved in an organization that helps people who have escaped Scientology. Have you had any involvement in that? Seems like a worthy thing to support. Yes, you are referring to the Aftermath Foundation. And yes, it is absolutely a good thing to support. You can find it at theaftermathfoundation.com, I believe. And um, that is run by, um, mainly by Aaron Smith-Levin as the spokesperson, co-runner of that group, and uh, the main public liaison. But yeah, Mark and Claire are on the board. Uh, Luis Garcia is on the board. And that is a group of people who have helped a number of people escape or get out of Scientology with support and help. It basically provides a support structure for somebody who doesn't have one. And when you want to leave Scientology, they're not... And they're not exit counselors, and they do not do therapy or counseling or try to get do interventions and get people out. If you're in the group and you want to leave and you contact the Aftermath Foundation, they will facilitate your departure. And they will, they will do the logistics. They will do the travel. They, they, they'll set you up someplace. They'll help get you a job. I mean, they really put a support structure there. That's what the Aftermath Foundation does. I have worked with them. I do not work for them. I am not officially part of that group. But I have worked closely with them because they're all my friends. <laughs> uh, and, of course, they are very worthy of support. So that's what I can say about that. Uh, yes, Gnome Sane asks... Chris, did many members, Scientologists he's referring here, travel to Mexico just to get cheaper auditing, and was that something punishable? Um, I wanted to make it punishable. I can, I can, uh, 
I see the focus is a little in and out. I know it responds to my hand movements a little bit too. Oh, there we go. I think it cleared up. Okay, so um, yes, people do travel to Mexico from America. They also travel all the way to South Africa. It's apparently cheaper for an American to buy auditing in Mexico or South Africa fly there, pay for their expenses, pay for their room and board out there, a hotel or whatever, get their auditing and fly back than it is to pay for it in Los Angeles or in Clearwater. And that is a solution that Scientologists have uh, engaged in, and they do not, there's no stops put on that. Um, I tried, when I was running the West U.S. and the, the delivery, the Scientology auditing and training delivery, all from the west of the Mississippi, I tried to curb and stop this practice because I heard about it and I was like, this is nuts. You can't just skip off to another continent to pay less. That's not okay. And I was told by an international management person when I sent this up the line, I was like, hey, this is happening. It's not okay. They were like, yeah, it is. It's okay. We don't care. And they didn't. They did not have a thing on it. And I was told to, to, to stop trying to fight it. And so I let it go. Because it's it's rare. It doesn't really happen that often. I think if word got out about it in the Scientology world, it would happen more often. But, you know, it's generally people who have the time and the money to go fly off somewhere for full-time auditing or training. Generally, those kind of people, um, you know, have some money to begin with. And, uh, and they just want to save you know, and so they'll so they'll make arrangements to go to another cont or whatever, um, you know, because it's a hassle and you need passports and flying these days and all that stuff. Um, but people do it. Yeah, it's a thing. Okay. Um, cool. Let's see how we're doing. Oh my god! I cannot believe it's already almost noon. These shows just fly so quickly. You know, Shimoda, that's a great... I wish I'd thought of that. That's a great way of saying it. Uh, Nation of Islam is to Islam what the Westboro Baptist Church is to Christianity. Nailed it. That's good. I, I should have thought of that. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I think Westboro Baptist is where you got it. Mormonisms, the Mormons are way tamer. Way tamer than the and then NOI. The Nation of Islam is is a is a violent group. They're not at all afraid to engage in any degree of violence they need to to, to meet their meet their ends. Um Okay, Kathy asks, Do you think the success of the new Top Gun movie will bring in new members? I sure hope not. Um it's possible, yeah. People are out there who adore and worship at the altar of Tom Cruise. Uh, they are. They're out there. There's celebrity, you know, worshipers and people who just absolutely will will just cannot believe a negative word about Tom Cruise and don't choose to believe what we have to say about him or about Scientology. And so those kinds of people could absolutely end up in Scientology because Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. Uh, fortunately for us, we are not hearing about waves of new people going into churches because of Top Gun. I think even amongst the fandom, a lot of people understand that Tom Cruise is a very, very weird, narcissistic person, and they don't really respect him. They're just entertained by the imagery and the and the special effects and the action of the movies he puts together. And that's why they follow him. And and those people are not going to go run off to become Scientologists. So and I think that's the majority of the fan base, to be honest with you. They're not personally invested in crews. But such people do exist and I think those people are susceptible to Scientology's uh draw. So Okay, PM, Chris, are there any huge difference between destructive cults started by government versus individuals? Um, no, no, there's not. A destructive cult's a destructive cult. Um, you know, when you ask me a question like this, I wonder, though, I mean, are you referring to something like the uh, Unification Church, the Moonies, because that was started by, you know, uh, or influenced heavily by the uh, South Korean government, for example. Um, CIA got involved in it, 
right, as an anti-North Korean sort of thing or something, if I remember that right. Again, I, this is another one of these areas where the, the ideological backstory is not, you know, at, at my fingertips. But there's definitely absolutely no question whatsoever that there was government involvement in the creation and enabling of the Moonies, the Unification Church. And, um, and that is absolutely one of the most destructive cults and labor trafficking groups uh, anywhere. They're awful. Um, but it's not like the government enabling made it a different kind of cult. A destructive cult has certain characteristics, does certain things, and, um, and the source of that doesn't, doesn't particularly matter much. It's the activity of the group and the behavior of the group that makes it uh, what it is. Okay, um, Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. There was some NOI stuff on the on Scientology in the aftermath, wasn't there? Okay. Um, <laughs> no, Xion, I doubt that your membership is still good. Um, oh, okay. Uh, Bran Nichols, thank you for that super chat. Can families share books? Uh, yes, they can. Yeah, it is okay in Scientology that, that, that a family have one single library that they use and draw from when they're doing their coursework or their classes. Um, you know, again, they'll encourage each individual Scientologist to buy their own stuff. They're just endlessly trying to sell people things. But there's no official thing that says um, you absolutely positively cannot use your dad's books. Right or your mom's e-meter or something. If you're, you know, if if it's that way, people do that all the time. Um. Okay, let's see here. Cruising on down. Um. Yeah. Oh, I just really do not like the influence of Louis Farrakhan. I can tell you that it's really ridiculous how how intrusive that group has become. Um. <laughs> Somebody asked me here, did you ever have a Scientology crush like Kirstie Alley in a bikini circa 1982? You're goddamn right I did. I thought Kirstie Alley was sexy as hell, and I absolutely crushed on her back in the day. I wouldn't now. She's kind of let herself go, but um, yeah. Yeah, definitely did. Uh, let's see here. Um <laughs> Shimoda. No, but I will take a drink from my Coke. Huh. All right. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. I think I'm going to have to get going here in a minute. Um. Okay, Xion, I'll, I'll answer this one and then we'll have to move on. Are you able to keep up with all the posts from Aaron Smith 11? So many lately. Any comments on the Masterson trial? I uh, have commented on the Masterson trial on Friday uh, on the live show that we did there. We talked all about it and my comments on it as well as my podcast uh, this last week and not the one with Mike but the one with Cyprian. We had a lot to say about the Masterson trial. So check those out. I, right now, um, I, you know, it, they need to get the jury and they need to get going. And that's what I want to see this next week. Hopefully the judge is right, that they will be able to get that done quickly and get going with the um, actual trial next week. But we'll see if her optimism actually pans out. Aaron has been uh, posting a lot. I do not keep up with his work. I sort of uh, glance in and see what he's posting on. It looks like he's basically posting what Tony's reporting. And Tony Ortega is there on site in L.A. reporting directly on the trial. Aaron takes that and kind of throws a video up on it. You know, and that's what's happening. And uh, and cool. Uh, but that's not... Um, I'm just kind of keeping up with it through the news media and stuff. All right. Um, so, yeah, I would love for Tom Cruise to watch Scientology in the Aftermath. Uh, no, I do not still receive Scientology junk promo. Um, let's see here. Clicking on through. Oh, boy, another spammer, and we will hide that. 
wonder where these guys come from on these uh, live streams. Anyway, okay, I think we're at an end point here. I think we're going to wrap up. I hope my answers this week were informative, educational, and entertaining in some fashion or another. Um, very, very much appreciate you guys coming and watching the show live. Definitely always appreciate the super chats as well. And I want to put a plug in because I don't do this enough and I really need to be promoting this, um, that I am a, um, a consultant. I'm not a therapist or a counselor, but I do consulting. And if you need help having come out of a cult, uh, friends or family who are in a cult situation or a coercively controlling situation, you don't know what to do, you have questions, reach out to me. I offer services. They are professional services. I charge by the hour. Uh, but I can give you advice and direction and uh, assistance in regards to those situations. So uh, feel free to reach out to me at um, askchrisshelton at gmail.com is my public email address that I always put out. And you can always reach me there or through my website, mncriticalthinking.com. And of course, if you like the content of my show, my channel, and what I'm doing here and the information you're learning, Please support me through Patreon, PayPal, or Venmo. There are links to the, all of those below in the description to this video. And um, I hope you will do so because this show is fan-funded. My whole channel is. Uh, this is my job. This is what I do. And I love doing it. So if you guys will enable me to continue doing it, then uh, the content will keep flowing. All right, guys, it's been wonderful to see you and uh, interact with you this week. And uh, watch for, let's see... Yeah. Uh, oh, I will not be doing, I needed to say this somewhere. I, I totally spaced again on Friday. Um, we will not be doing a live Friday show this coming up Friday. There will not be a critical conversation show because I am going to be doing a speaking engagement in New York. And so I will be announcing where and when. As soon as I um, get those details, I'll post them on my channel and I'll put them up on Twitter. But um no live show, but there will be a regular podcast and Q&A show next weekend as usual. All right. That all being said, thanks for coming around, guys. Bye-bye.